What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Lopriori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. So let's get right into it, right? As a kid, did you ever feel that you know, in terms of your mental health that you might have been struggling with something. And then if you want to let us know what it is that you struggle with, that would be fantastic. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I knew there was something there. Like, you know, from when I was like really little, I knew. So that my parents took me to see a, a psychologist when I was five. So I didn't understand it. I didn't, you know, no one explained it to me because no one did right back then. Yeah. What's a psychologist like? Do you remember like like going there? Little bits of it, funnily enough. Yeah, little bits. I remember her, the, the psychologist. Yeah. But I remember being very like confused and a little bit scared, to be honest. Yeah, because it was all it was all quite formal, like in this like psychologist room, me, and my parents and, and her. And yeah, it was it was kind of weird. It's like they kinda of, like trick you and like let you play with stuff in there, but like ask you questions at the same time. I didn't have a lot of stuff to play with. This was Oh wow, they got right into it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like you know. You remember like though, like they kind of trick you. They're just like, hey, like play with this train, and then like we'll ask you some questions. (laughs) No, I didn't get any of that. No, no, no. Man, you were in the deep then. Yeah, it was intense. It was was pretty intense for like a five year old. Super intense for five years old. I know it was. It was yeah. And obviously my parents were there as well. But yeah, I didn't. I didn't. You know, I didn't. So we because we didn't talk about it like outside of the psychologist like thing. So no, we didn't talk about it. It was very like we didn't tell family about it. It was like you know very stigmatized, very taboo. Like nobody wants to admit they're bringing their five year old to a psychologist. No, no, no way. Do you know what, like kind of things you were dealing with though at that time? I was having what what they call you know these night terrors, like these really vivid nightmares that sort of come to life. So I wasn't sleeping properly. Mm like at all i was really anxious i was i was a little bit violent actually to be honest you were beating other kids up not other kids no more <laughs> no 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 more my family oh, that makes more sense that makes more sense you know why not i beat up a couple of my family members why not <laughs> yeah it's not something you know, i'm proud of but i don't know i was i, I was scared so i guess i was lashing out because of like the things that were happening at night time like the you know it's just scary so yeah i guess i was like yeah, I, I was. I was lashing out, I guess. I couldn't because really, I couldn't articulate what was going on. I didn't understand it. So, yeah, l- lashing out, I guess. Yeah. The reason I asked that question is because I didn't get a diagnosis. See, I, I have uh, bipolar type two, is what I was diagnosed with. But I didn't get a diagnosis until uh, like 27, 28 years old. No, that's, yeah. So it's like kind of late to like kind of like have a bomb. But you were, you were like 20. Correct. You got your diagnosis. Yeah, I was twenty. I was twenty, but there was still like, I'm sure I could have been diagnosed earlier. Yeah, for sure. My thing was I always hid from doctors' offices, mm. especially like if I'm not going to go to a doctor for like my broken hand, I'm not going to go to a doctor for my broken brain. Like that's the last thing I'm thinking about. 
just because like growing up, it was just very, you know, like, it, you know how it is. It's very stigmatized. Nobody really wants to admit that they have something psychologically wrong with them. Like I'd rather have like at that point in my head, I was like, I'd rather get like diagnosed with like cancer or something yeah, than get diagnosed with some kind of mental illness because cancer, it's like, all right, Hey, what's up? We can go in there. We could start chemo and there's some kind of end to it. Yeah. Good or bad. There's some kind of end to it. That's what my thinking was. No, I get, I get it. And then they were just like, no, nah, like you have bipolar. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is the rest of my life. But then I had the, to go off, piggyback off what you just said. I was like, Oh, I've probably just been dealing with this my whole life though. I was like, it probably is like, you know, like something that's that I've been dealing with, but your diagnosis is I've never heard of your diagnosis. If you could let me and the audience know about your diagnosis, this is extremely fascinating to me. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's called schizoaffective disorder. And so, yeah, it kind of encompasses schizophrenia, but then like a mood disorder as well. It's not just like pure schizophrenia, it's the mood disorder as well. That's how I kind of explain it. But again, I didn't understand when I was given that diagnosis because it was yeah like it's a shock as well it was such a shock i knew that i wasn't well but you know you're not expecting that diagnosis right no, you don't no especially when you're in there you're like i know me you know it's like i have some stuff but like i'm I like i kind of have control i guess of it i think we do a lot of mental gymnastics to ourselves when uh we're in these deeper and darker places and we try to self-diagnose which is what a lot of people end up doing they, they self-diagnose themselves and uh, to finally get the diagnosis, I remember going into it. And then I remember when I got it, I did have a moment where I was like, this is so terrible. Like, this is the worst day of my life. But then after I was like, all right, you know what? At least I know. Okay. At least I know now. And it was kind of a relief to be like, okay, so now how do I go about just getting better with this? And then, you know, it actually, you know, it led me to what I'm doing now. So for me, my downs are very down, like sure. superbly down, 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 down. I had a depressive episode like a week and a half ago, like for four days. And I was remember just being like, all right, you know, it's so much better now because I do have the necessary coping mechanisms to deal with it mm -hmm. before I didn't. So I kind of am able to ride the wave the best that I can at this point Amazing. with mine. Amazing. Yeah, so thank you. I appreciate that. And and for me, I always try to ask other people with the same diagnosis or different diagnosis is especially when we're in the space where we talk about mental health and we want to help people, I think people kind of forget that like we struggle too. Mm, yeah, sure. You know, people look to us for a lot of help and obviously people look to us to get a lot of answers. And sometimes it's like I almost forget I'm like, "Oh shit, like wait, like I struggle too. I, I almost forgot. Yeah. Do you have moments like that, especially in the profession that you do, that you're like, oh, wait, like I forgot, like I have some shit going on. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot, a lot, especially, you know, trying to support other people, a lot of other people. That's tough. Like boundary. I, I'm so bad with like boundaries and stuff. I've, I've, yeah, me too. It's tough, right? Especially, I think, you know, given again what you do and like social things on like social media. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just get a lot of messages. Oh, yeah. A ton of DMs. Yeah. Yeah. And some tough ones, maybe. Heavy shit. Like, you, you don't realize, like, unless like you're in it, 
and you know i love being a mental health advocate but some like i'll, I'll read a dm and, like cry sometimes mm. i'm like damn dude and you know i try to when we're in a position where we're trying to help so many people sometimes we kind of forget to help ourselves yeah. So it's like, I can't give you the necessary attention that you need right now because I'm going through it myself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Someone, someone said to me once, like, it's okay. Cause just sometimes all people need is just, just to release it. Sometimes they don't want an answer. Cause I was always, you know, I need to give people the solution or I need to fix, you know, people, but sometimes, yeah, maybe people just need to just vent and, you know, know that it's going to be receive non-judgmentally someone that understands but then obviously you know there's always the yeah i get that thing of like because you don't want people to go through what you went through right and you want people to you know i'm lucky as well i've got tools now that you know i use when i'm in bad places but other people don't have those tools so you want to be able to give the but yeah it's it's such a it's such as i I actually um because i know you spoke to kevin hines and um oh yeah that's my man yeah, love. Yeah, I mean, he's he's such a legend, and I mean, he was telling me about again, like how he struggles with with this thing of like trying to help everyone, trying to fix everyone. It's it's tough. It's so tough. It is, yeah, really tough. And it's something that I think about. I think it it's kind of it's always been in my nature to kind of make sure other people were okay, like kind of before myself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of my best traits, but it mm-hmm. at times it can be a little detrimental, like to my own mental health. It's like, you know, because listen, when you take on a lot of everybody's emotional baggage, it can become yours. Yeah. Some of these things can be triggering for certain people. And like, I even find when I do this show or when I go and speak at like my old school and talk to them, it's like, you know, I, I let people know, like, I don't have all the answers. Like, you know, I'm not a doctor. You know, I've never claimed to be. I'm just letting you guys know, like, this is what I go through. And this is what I've picked up along the way that's been helpful to me. That's the only thing that I could do. But that's great. I mean, don't never underestimate how much that helps people because, and no offense, but sometimes doctors don't always, sometimes doctors don't always give the best, maybe. Oh, for sure. A good amount of the time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, it's like, hearing scientific. it from you. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. So, but hearing it from you is like, completely different like i mean i've got so much from like talking to people with lived experience more than maybe you know psychiatrists psychologists oh for sure it's like hey i'm like hey i even like talked to my psychiatrist a couple times about it it's like sometimes like i'd rather listen to a dude that like openly like tried to kill himself because i think they've gone a little deeper than you (laughs) i love it (laughs) i love the honesty that's like when i was talking to kevin hines i was just like yeah like dude like that should put a charge in my ass you know i was like this dude's story is unfucking believable uh-huh. uh-huh so that's why for me that's like the flip side of doing what i do i get to hear all of these amazing stories you know some good some bad and i feel that if i didn't have a platform and was able to speak to people about it who knows where i would be so you're in high school, start drinking, get through Christmas, realize, you, you know, you can bullshit a little bit. You, you know, you start sh- sharpening your skills. Uh, you go through high school, you get to college, right? So when you get into college, do you have any idea that you kind of have problems with alcohol at this time? You know, it's funny, Danny. Like, I, 
I knew that alcohol was a huge part of my identity and not so much like the drinking, but kind of this like persona that I was rolling out to the world. Right. So like in high school, I get the superlative like life for the party. And that was just like further validation that like, this is who I'm supposed to be. You know, I took a great deal of pride in being able to like drink a lot and drink fast. And I didn't ever really see an issue with it. Like I was, I always tell people like I was blacking out in college and even in high school, but like I never no one ever grabbed I mean, it's like, dude, you're not supposed to black. Like, you're not supposed to forget half the night. I thought that's just what happened when you drank, right? So, like, yeah, I think it was like a a mix of like knowing that I loved the party and I drank a lot, and I probably overshot the mark a little bit, but also thinking like this is what you know a normal high school college age kid does. You know, the other thing I'll say is that in college, you know, some other dry goods came into play to start doing a little coke start doing some adderall here like you know so it's like these performance enhancing as i saw them you know drugs that would help me drink you know longer and stronger kind of things it's a lot of pressure in college a lot of people don't realize you know like college is a privilege but it's also a very difficult privilege trying to figure out who you are as a person there's a lot of work you're pretty much living on your own for the first time. There's a lot going on. You know, there's girls around. There's a lot going on. I think that a lot of people, when it comes to their habits, start probably towards the tail end of high school, but a lot of them start to start around college. I'm sure you do as well. Like, you know, a lot of my friends develop drug habits in college. Like you said, that you got introduced to, uh, to Adderall and cocaine and all those things. How old are you now? I'm 38. 38 so i'm 33 so like damn you were like the first era of adderall <laughs> yeah yeah we found that early it was it was ritalin and adderall by whatever you get your hands on yeah ritalin yeah ritalin that was the og that shit is retro <laughs> yeah no man but i 100 agree with you and like the reality is and i think we'll probably get into it a, a little bit more later but i've recently taken a, a major interest in just what's going on on these college campuses from a from a professional lens, you know, because yeah, it's not like I'm 38. So I was in school, you know, almost 20 years ago. Right. And so there was no social media. Like I had a flip phone, you know, like my worst day was like call my mom and like needing 20 bucks so I could like, you know, feed myself or whatever else it was. And like the kids today, like with all the pressure that they face, it's not cool. You know, and that's why I think we're seeing like the suicide rates raise and, you know, the numbers are just staggering. So you know, yeah, college is, is, is tough. And it can also be like a beautiful existence. I mean, I look at my 15 friends that I grew up with, like, you know, me and like one or two other dudes like lost our way, but the other guys like had fun and partied and like now they're just like more dudes working in the world, like jobs and whatever else. So it's like, yeah. Right. Just do, doing what they do. Yeah. When you were in college, did you have any sense like, all right, now I got a fucking problem. Something's going on. Or even all through college, you were like, nah, this is just like what kind of what you're supposed to do. Yeah, man. I think for me, like it didn't hit me till it hit me. Like it didn't actually hit me till like the first time that I had to go to rehab that I actually understand, which was at like 25, what the hell was going on. And at that point, like I knew that not only did I have a drinking problem, but like drugs and like the whole thing. Right. But I just went hard until kind of that, honestly. Where'd you go to college? York. York, 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 Pennsylvania. York, Pennsylvania. Shout out to York, uh, Pennsylvania. I've only been to York, Pennsylvania like two times. When it comes for your day to day and your parents, 
What's your relationship like now? What was it like back then? And how important were they to kind of helping you build your mindset in terms of going forward and getting clean and, and figuring your life out? I mean, bro, I won the lottery with my parents. You know, I've worked in behavioral health care for the past 10 years and I see all different types of family systems. And when I put them up against mine, like I truly know how blessed I am to have the parents that I had because, you know, they were, they were real and they were authentic and they didn't like co-sign my bullshit, but they hung in there with me. You know, they hung in there with me more so than anyone else. And they really just loved me until I could love myself. So like, you know, back in the day, me and my old man, like grew up and like I played baseball. So like his whole, our whole thing was like baseball. And then mom was just the best, you know, giving the rides, putting food on the plate, like just being the the absolute most loving, caring mom you could ever ask for. And then, you know, kind of like when, when she hit the fan for me from the period of like, you know, really like 25 to 27, you know, they say when someone's, you know, in their active addiction, not only does the identified patient get sick, but the entire family does. Right. And that's definitely true in my experience, which like, for sure. you know, here I am, like, I'm, you know, I'm running around, I'm partying, I'm shoving a bunch of oxy up my nose. And like, my mom totally has my number, you know, my dad's totally like hanging in there with me. And he's like the ultimate, like grit, grit down. Like we got this, we're going to do it kind of dude. You know, it started to cause a rift between the two of them. You know, like I started to slowly rip my family apart. And so, I went to rehab the first time and, you know, they were both kind of like supportive and I was married at that time. And so like I had a wife that was supportive and like the first time around, like I definitely had a a crew of people around me. And then I got out of treatment that first time and went on a, a, on a run for eight months, which like, you know, ended up in Camden, New Jersey with like a needle in my arm, you know, and that's just like where this thing took me. And my dad was actually the one that kind of, flew in and saved the day because he had gotten a call from the bank teller where I was trying to cash one of his checks. Yeah. This is a story I I wanted to get into as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I can tell that story, but yeah, my parents are the band today. They're my best friends. It's beautiful. I love that. I have a great uh, respect for all parents. You know what I mean? It's just not, it's not an easy gig. Well, I just think it's like, it's worth mentioning, like there's no playbook for these parents, right? And like, if your kid has cancer, if your kid has like heart disease, your kid has diabetes, like you take the doctor, they tell you exactly what to do and and everyone does it. But with this thing, it's like, yeah, you can go to rehab, you can kind of go to some of these meetings, you can do some therapy and we're still not even sure if it's actually going to (laughs) work. Yeah, Yeah, no, dude, listen, when it comes to behavioral shit and addiction, that's a fucking tough go. You know, when I got diagnosed with panic disorder, it was like, you know, you learn a lot about like fight or flight. And it's like, I'd rather like, I told them one time, like I was so fed up with panic, uh, having panic disorder and not knowing when the fucking shit was going to go away. I'm just like, yeah, I'd rather have fucking cancer at this point. At least like I would know like, oh, you got to go get chemotherapy. And this is like what it's going to be like. I was like, I can't fucking deal with this shit. It it was so fucking bad. That was three years ago. Almost four years ago, I started having like crazy panic attacks. So I stopped drinking and I stopped doing cocaine cold turkey. And then my brain was just like, yo, bro, where's that shit that we love so much? And then I was like, nah. And then I had a fucking nervous breakdown. I didn't sleep for like three days. Like I felt like my drug dealer was like coming looking for me. Like I owed him money and shit. So like in my head, I'm like, yo, like, is this guy like coming here? Like, and just made it up in my head. I was like, no, nah, like he was mad at me the last time I saw him. And then um, it got to the point where like, I couldn't 
eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't fucking wipe my own ass. Like shit was so fucking bad, bro. It was terrible. I couldn't shower. I couldn't do shit. And uh, I remember um, I've told the story on the show before, but I was like, yo, I'm going to fucking kill myself, bro. Like this is a horrible existence. I can't live like this. Right. I was just like, yo, like I'm going to wait till I'm alone. I'm going to put my dog in the crate and I'm going to jump off this 11th floor terrace and I'm just going to fucking end this shit because this shit is so whack. Right. But I remember, but thankfully, I had the moment of clarity where I was like, yo, dude, just like go check yourself in somewhere. Let's figure this out. Let's, let's get you baselined out. Let's figure out what's going on. But I was trying to deal with it so much on my own now uh, with the addiction, the drinking, the panic disorder, the anxiety. So like, I was like, yeah, like I've never really cared about mental health before. Like I I come from like my parents, all their parents were immigrants. Like they, like they didn't know anything about like behavioral science and shit. You know, like when my dad was a kid, if he got upset, his dad would be Italian. Did he be like, shut up? You know, like he would just be like, like, be a man and shit. You know what I mean? So like, that's kind of the only thing that my dad knew. And like, my mom is the same way too. Like they're, beautiful people but they're like tough people my parents were the type of like if i broke my finger i wouldn't go to the hospital or like if i broke my foot like i we just didn't go to the hospital like that's just like how we went because it would be so expensive and he's like they're not gonna be able to do anything for you right so and i grew up in a family with four other kids in it and i felt like you know my parents kind of labeled me as the most normal one like my brother had a kid at 16 my sister Kathy uh, is adopted. She had her issues growing up. My brother Michael has Tourette syndrome. My oldest sister, uh, she's from a previous uh, marriage that my mom had. There was a lot of things going on. They're like, all right, this one's like the most normal. Like he plays sports and like does like normal high school shit. And, but like the whole time I was just like drinking my fucking face off, like going super hard. My parents, it was crazy, but like my recovery strengthened my relationship with my parents so much. I've never been closer to my parents in my life like than I am now. But yeah, dude, that shit was crazy, bro. When we're in the middle of this thing, it's just, we're so, we're like driven by the selfish, self-centered thoughts. And so just you, like when you put this shit down, it's like, okay, I'm going to call my mom and like say what's up. Cause she would probably appreciate that. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, she, she loves it. She loves it. And it's like, um, like my dad recently, he had like a cardiac event, like last week, he had like a minor heart attack. It's like his third one. When he had his first one, I was really afraid. The second one, I was like, okay. And now that he had this one, for some reason, I was like destroyed by it because he's like, he's like my best fucking friend, my dad. Yeah. When you're a kid, I was just like, I don't know, like if I was just afraid because I was a kid when it happened. But like now it's just like, yeah, like I even thought about it. Like it's, it's even hard for me to think about like, what would I do without my dad? It's like my best friend. He was somebody that never believed in therapy, like growing up and shit. But like now he goes to therapy. And like lives a better lifestyle and you know, he's doing okay. He's home now. He's chilling, but like, you know, it's, it's, we're so fucking blessed to have our parents, bro. Yeah. Prayers up for your dad. I mean, dude, my, I, and I haven't even talked about this uh, really publicly, but like my mom, my mom got sick at the beginning of the year and you know, it's interesting. You talked a little bit at the beginning about like how this thing is a struggle daily and I don't know, like I've had a, a little bit of a different experience, whereas like, I'm so grateful to have found my recovery. And I do believe that I get to live like a next level existence. So my good days, like far outweigh my bad days. And like, oh, for sure. Even in that moment, like, like when my old man called me, he's like, yo, mom's getting a surgery. I was like the first one on the plane to Florida, like of the five kids, like 
crawling into the hospital bed with mom, like giving her a hug. Yeah. And the only reason I got to do that shit was because of my recovery, you know, and like I'm here and I'm present and like, I know smart feet. Like when someone needs help, I know how to show up and like no drug or drink or, you know, whatever was going to give me the, the moxie to like go show up the way I showed up over that, you know, two weeks when I was down there, kind of like helping nurse her back to health. And she's kicking ass now. Like I'm playing golf with her Sunday. Like she's the best. <laughs> Love it. Beautiful. But listen, uh, like I always say sometimes on the show, it's like everybody's trauma is different. And I'd like to see where people come from. I like to see how they got there because like you said in your podcast about yeah, an origin story, we really all do have an origin story. I'm very close to my brothers. I see a lot of similarities in your brother that uh, with one of my brothers, my brother, Michael. In high school, he had a very hard time. He acted out a lot, sold drugs, did drugs, had a very difficult uh, high school experience. And we talk about it on our show too. But when I was hearing about your brother, you know, I couldn't help but think about my brother who, you know, has since, you know, was able to change a lot of, uh, of his ways. But, you know, he still struggles with some things. And then I got to the part where you're talking about your panic attacks, which I'm very familiar with. Do you remember your first panic attack? I don't know that I remember the first, but I remember a lot of the initial, like some of the more memorable ones. Like I remember if it wasn't the very first one, it was in the top three that I was in the middle of high school. It's always the last place often you'd want to have a panic attack is where your stress levels go up and your mind starts racing. And I know I was listening to you talking about your panic attacks an episode ago as well, where you're describing it. It's like, yeah, you feel like you just got in a fight, but I was yeah in the middle of an auditorium in high school. To be honest, I don't even remember what it was for, but we were just like sitting in the audience and it's like, you know, I started feeling that chest pain and my heart racing. And then my mind took over I hyperventilated. Next thing I know, I'm in a wheelchair in front of the entire high school being carted out. And it's like for a high schooler, like nightmare scenario. And just like, you know, your popularity hit like three points down, probably, you know, like your popularity scores, like your credit score in high school. Right. And then you just become the heart attack kid. Your heart attack boy. Heart attack. Exactly. Exactly. Because especially then, this is like 2001. Like, no, no one. Growing up in the Midwest in the early 2000s, late 90s, nobody talked about mental health. No, very retro. That's a very retro panic attack. Very Tony Soprano of you. Which is sad because plenty of people were, were having panic attacks, right? Plenty of people had anxiety and depression and bipolar. But it's interesting, the older I get, the more you understand generational differences of like growing up, nobody was saying I have anxiety. No one was saying I have panic disorder. I didn't learn those words until I was like 25. Right. And I'm 33. But it's so wild to think, right? And you had had these experiences before that, that you're oh, like, what for the sure. hell is this? Yeah. Because my thing was when I was growing up, my parents, God bless them, not big fans of doctors. Uh, you know, a very Italian, very Puerto Rican, not really into it. So that was for physical things. Like if I broke my finger, my dad would be like, what are they going to do for it? They're going to put it in a splint, like whatever. Take some Tylenol, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what it was. And if it wasn't on the surface, 
it didn't really make sense for them to like go talk to a doctor about it. They thought we could handle it here and let's try to figure it out before we get like other people involved. And I think a part of that goes to the stigma of mental health for them, but also they don't want me to go through it. They don't want me to get like a diagnosis and end up, you know, having to grow up with that. I, I was not diagnosed with bipolar until like I was like 29 years old. Wow. That's how long it took me to get to that point, you know, and I had to start go seeing doctors and, you know, therapy and all that stuff, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I had some kind of panic attacks when I was younger, definitely anxiety. But when you were going through that in high school, what did the school do for you? Nothing. <laughs> See, that's why I always go back to the school because that's where you are 10 hours out of the day. Right. You know, it's almost like they know you better than like kind of your parents at the time because they're with you all the time. You're right. And it's impossible for me to explain now, like having literally been in school my whole life studying mental health, like no one had ever mentioned depression, anxiety, panic. Like it wasn't in the language growing up in Wadsworth, Ohio in the late 90s, early 2000s. So like they were literally like, this kid's having heart attacks. Even though, of course, like, and I was listening to your story, same kind of deal. You go to the ER, they check you out and they're like, nothing's wrong with you. Oh, like a hundred times. And you just are repeating it. I remember the thing I remember so vividly is the breaking point where it's like I had gotten everything checked out, you know, the brain, the lungs, the stomach. I had to. Right. And then you're, I was on the heart. I remember this really like elder, the, the nice way I'm going to put it is elder cardiologist. He like looked up at me after he said everything was fine and he looked at me and he goes, why are you doing this? Yeah. I just started bawling. Like I'm 13, 14 years old. Amazing bedside manner. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And But it was a weird breaking point because I remember my mom coming to my side and being like, we'll figure this out, whatever. But I was like, I don't, I don't want this shit to be happening. Like, I don't, I know. I don't want this at all. W was your father sick at that time? He was. And then your brother was struggling at that time. He was, he was in God and bless out. your fucking mom, dude. Mom has always always been the real hero and everything like i don't god bless that woman she she's endured so much and balanced so much like and again like i go on and on about my mom but she was the one no that's a good thing exactly exactly again you got to be grateful for the parts of your life again that were like glue because all of us have something like all of us got something in our life that kind of held us up it might have been a friend it might have been you know, an aunt, it might've been somebody, but we do. Sometimes we push those people away or don't recognize them as much as we should. But my, my mom, from that point, she was like, we're going to try something completely different. I'm going to take you to this therapist. Literally, I'd never heard of someone going to a therapist. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell is that? And I remember the first session, I think I said like 30 words. Like I was just staring at this woman and she was just firing questions at me. And it's like, I ended up going to her like 10, 12 times and like literally helped my panic so much. And I, I kind of got on the other side of controlling it. But I remember in the beginning just being like, I don't even know what we do here. Were you down to go? I was down because I was so, and maybe you relate to this. I was so sick of feeling like I was dying. Yeah, I would try anything. Like you, you ever see like Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey? No, 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 no. Haven't, so, haven't. Like he plays Andy Kaufman and like at the end, they're like trying everything. And he like goes to like 
a like a foreign country to try like any kind of medicine to like get better. I was at that point where I was like, yeah, I'll fly to like Mexico right now and just have like somebody bless my body. I was like, I'll do anything at this point. That's good that you were receptive though. At like fifth, what was it? 15? I think I was like 14. I would've been a freshman in high school. Yeah. That's a tough thing to do though, because when you're young, especially when we were young, Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be known as the crazy kid. Well, a hundred percent. Nobody wants to be known as you know crazy Danny or crazy Justin. That's right, because it stays with you and it doesn't go anywhere. And the mind is very manipulative. At some point, you're going to think you're crazy if enough people call you crazy. It's easy, sort of post high school, and I work with teens mainly as a therapist. But you can be so removed from sort of the high school climate that you forget. Like if somebody is calling you a name every day, if you become known as the crazy heart attack kid that goes to therapy, like if that's really the tagline that people just associate and say to you, like, how does that not wear you down? How does that not hit your ego? And just speaking for me, like that was one of the main reasons why, like, I didn't go see guidance counselors when I was having bad times in high school. Right. I didn't want to go because everyone was going to be like, there goes crazy Dan. There you go. Crazy Dan things. And he gets pulled out of class to like, go talk to someone. This kid's fucking nuts. So I was already battling like a stigma of like, I just didn't want my peers to think I was nuts. Exactly. And that's where people can get really eye rolly with breaking stigma and mental health and stuff. But like when you have had that experience, Experience where it's like you can't even mention what you're going through out of fear that you're going to be labeled as crazy, you know, amongst your peers and your entire environment. It's like that's what we talk about when you talk about stigma of like you are putting yourself in a box and living there because the alternative of coming out of it feels worse. We were talking a little bit before. I always ask this question for you. When you're doing stand-up, do you still get nervous? No. You don't care, right? It's another day at the office. You know what it is? I think the more I do stand-up, the the less fucks I give, the better I get. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to. It's just kind of this natural progression. It's just another day at the office. Yeah. I think once you just like, you know, you put enough time in and like you kind of get those reps in. Yeah. You're more working out new stuff at that point instead of like being nervous. You're like, oh, like, well, this didn't get the reaction I wanted it to or this killed. So I'm going to like try and do this. I mean, my birthday was on May 18th and then on May 19th. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy belated. Thank you. I ended up getting booked at the Laugh Factory here in uh, Los Angeles, which is a very big comedy club. But I got booked on uh, two clubs, one in Long Beach and then one in Hollywood. So I go do the Long Beach set and then I'm like driving like a maniac. I get to Hollywood and the manager walks up to me and goes, hey, I need to bump you because Joe Coy is here. You know who Joe Coy is. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm like, first of all, there's no fucking way I'm going to follow Joe Coy. I'm like, I'm not following Joe Coy. This is ridiculous, right? Yeah. And I'm like, I love Joe. That's why I, I, I like worship the guy. So, uh, you know, his people are like, no, no, no. And I get it. You know, they're protecting him and they're protecting the space. So I walk up to Joe, and, uh, to Joe Coy and I'm like, hey, Joe, my, my name is Mona. I'm you know, going up. You think I can just go up and do my time a little bit right before you? He was like, yeah, go for it. I don't give a shit. Like, just go. I've worked with him. I used to work at Caroline's Comedy Club. He is a very nice man. 
the coolest. Super cool. Coolest. Super I adore cool. him. Yeah. He's so great. I think if you ask about nervousness, I don't think I was nervous. I was a little self-conscious right. that one of my heroes is watching. That's when it can get tough because you never know who's going to pop into a green room. Right. You don't know who's going to pop in the green room. I mean, they already gave us the heads up that I was getting bummed. But, uh, you know, and he was like so lovely. Like after my set, he was like, you were awesome. That's hilarious. He goes, I love you. You're fucking fantastic. So as a younger comic compared to him, he's been doing it for like fucking 30 years. Yeah. You know, I'm like a child compared to him. I'm like a freaking toddler. But to get that kind of approval from somebody you admire so much, it, it means the world. That's what people need to hear on this show. All right. Just try. Just try. And if you get an opportunity, make it work. Don't say, no, it's okay. Just go to the opportunity. Fear is a powerful thing. You can either use it for you to your advantage or you can make it work against you. I mean, but you have to be conscious enough to ask yourself, what is it that's stopping me from doing? What is it that I want to do? And 99% of the time, it's fear. 99% of the time. And you have to stop and be like, am I going to keep letting this fucking fear run my life? Or am I going to tell it to fuck off? Because most of the time, fear is just an illusion. And I'm just going to go for it. And not, honestly, majority of the time, it's just a fucking illusion. And the thing is, too, it's like, you're not fearing actually doing it. You're fearing that people are going to like, you know, it's not going to go well. Just do it. If it goes well, it goes well. I remember even telling my friends, like, I've done a set where I've bombed and I thought it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you did it for yourself. Kind of just have to laugh at yourself and just be like, oh, all right. Well, <laughs> you know, like even in the moment, I'll be like, OK, I was like, you know, it's like you're going to have to have fun with it. The thing I feel a lot of people, we feel as if we'll never recover from something like that bad. Right. But I'm telling you, you will. There's so much worse shit that can happen to you in your life. So you left your house. Yeah. You go and take this public bus. Yeah. Are you having an internal dialogue at that time? Are you talking to, are you talking to anybody on the bus? No, I wasn't talking to anybody on the bus. I was talking to myself. Well, I was talking to myself out loud on the bus. That's what I'm saying. I was yelling aloud at the voices I was hearing in my head. Oh, I'll never, forget, I'll never forget it. I'm on the bus sitting in the very back row in the middle seat. So if you're on the bus, the only way to look at is at me. I'm yelling, leave me alone. But I don't want to die. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? But everybody on the bus is like this crazy guy. Yeah. And literally the guy to my left says to the fellow next to him while kind of pointing me with his thumb, smiling and laughing, what the hell's wrong with that kid? As opposed to asking me if I need help. That's where I have this disconnect with the rest of society. Let me be clear, not all of us. Right, right, right. People that care about those mental struggles and people that look emotionally unwell and they'll take action. But there are more people than that who do not and won't. Yeah, it can't be bothered really. People are worried. Are they dangerous? Is Are they going to threaten me? Should I put myself in that situation? I don't have the time. You know, all that crap. Do you still feel that way now? I feel like more than ever, we're talking about mental health, but more than ever, we're having the wrong conversation. Oh, wow. We're talking about it more than ever before. For sure. Organizations are pushing awareness more than ever before, but solution-based efforts are lacking. Because if they weren't lacking, people wouldn't be dying as a, at a rate they are today. Right. Especially men. Especially men. More females are attempting than ever before. 
uh, more five to nine-year-old black children are dying by suicide than ever before in the history of America, and that is terrifying. Uh, more four to ten-year-old children, children. How does a four-year-old not take their life? That's unbelievable. Are dying by suicide than ever before. This is something we need to wrap our heads around now, not yesterday, not tomorrow, now. And one of the things that bothers me is the suicide prevention community is so siloed. We all work in our own little silos. And when someone gets funding, the other one goes, I hate you, as opposed to you have the funding. I'm going to bolster you up. What can I do to help you and your cause? We're all competing with each other for pots of money that are negligent and, and non-existent. And instead of competing, we should be collaborating and finding ways to actually save more lives. I agree with you. And before we get back into your story, I know that uh, one of your biggest fights really is to basically make the Golden Gate Bridge. I know they're working on the net now, like they're saying that it's, it's nearing completion. And the thing that I saw from one of your interviews is, is that one of the main arguments is it would not be aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? You know, it's not aesthetically pleasing watching somebody leap to their death. Die right in front of you. Yeah. yeah. Not very pleasing aesthetically. Yeah. My God. I said this in my film. I said, what are the aesthetics of a bridge compared to one human life? Yep. And if one human life that dies by suicide affects at the very least 115 people, the secondary effect and the tertiary effect are incalculable. The number of people that are affected by one suicide is incalculable for all the people that have touched that life, for all the people that find out someday that person died, for all the people that are born into that family that didn't know the person that passed away, but then learns that their uncle or aunt or grandpa or grandma died, and that's how they died. It affects you over generations. For sure. And it's one of those things, too, where, like, uh, I mean, the ripple effect is the perfect name for your documentary especially in conversation about suicide. And for me, that kind of was the driving force and why I didn't pursue uh, killing myself, you know, uh, committing suicide is because you see what happens to people off of natural death. Yeah. The grief. Grief is immeasurable. When you love someone unconditionally and they pass away, that grief is with you forever. In America, we love to sit there and go, Oh, snap out of it. Get over it. Move on. You know, it's been two years, Danny. Yeah. When someone dies by suicide that we love, it is a kind of pain that you can never shake off. I have lost. No, you never forget it. No, I've lost 12 people this way. I've lost 12 people to suicide that I care about. I think about them each every day and I take time to pray for them every day. They didn't die because of me or in spite of me. They died because a lethal emotional pain that had nothing to do with me. I accept that. I don't hold guilt for what they did, but I am brokenhearted about it. But here's the thing. I don't believe any of us can move on from a suicide. I think that's impossible. I, I think it is too. I think we can look to the living, look to the living and say, how do we find a way to move forward? Not on, that's impossible, forward. How do we keep going? How about all the families that have a death in the family by suicide and then another one and then another one and then another one in different generations of the family because of that one option that has been let out of the bag, you know? Yeah. Come an option in the family and then somebody else thinks about it. 
then they attempt or they die. It's just, it's a cycle that just repeats itself. And we really need to focus on what matters here. We need to have the conversation about suicide at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. We do in our homes. We need to look at our kids who are in high school, who are thinking of suicide more than ever before in the history of the universe and say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? And do you have the means? That doesn't put the thought in their mind if it's not already there, gives them permission to speak on their pain. A pain shared becomes a pain halved and they stay alive. It's a very difficult conversation, people think. And I'm sure it is. Only because we make it that. That's what I was going to say. Only because we preface it with like, oh, you can't talk about that. The word suicide. That's why that's why when you actually this is fascinating. The crisis text lines, new algorithm, a recent algorithm, which is fantastic and very powerful, has figured out through a keyword search that asking the question, are you thinking of killing yourself? Gets a more honest answer than are you thinking of suicide or are you thinking of self-harm? Because suicide has a taboo on the word and self-harm is by definition not suicide, it's self-harm. So when you ask the question, are you thinking of killing yourself, you get a more truthful and honest answer than are you thinking of suicide, which is important because language matters. That's why we say, for sure. that's why a lot of us in the suicide prevention community say die by suicide, just like you would die of any other organ disease as opposed to commit, which sounds like they're committing a crime. Right. Which is something people learn over time and you decide on your own whether you want to say the one or the other. But I feel more comfortable saying that I attempted to die by suicide rather than commit because I wasn't committing a crime. I'm not a bad person. I wasn't committing a a terrible act. I was in pain. And it makes you feel shameful when you say it more that way. What is the one thing, Danny, you want to happen when you're in excruciating physical pain? What do you want that pain to do? Go away. Go away. That's physical pain, Danny. Brain pain, 300,000 times worse. How much of this, like, like you said, you don't want to be Robert Pattinson in Twilight. Do you want to be Robert Pattinson in Batman or you just want to be Robert Pattinson? I could play whatever the fuck I want to play. I want to be Dwayne Johnson, Kanye West. Kanye Johnson. Kanye Johnson. I want to be Kanye Johnson, Drake. I want to be, I mean, all three of those cats, Kanye Johnson, Drake Pryor, Richard Pryor, all four of those people were going down paths and realized this is not what I want to be known for. Richard Pryor's out of all of them was probably the most because he stayed in his job, like in the direct comedy job. He just changed his entire, you know, routine and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, before Richard Pryor, there were no comedians that came from those kind of places talking about that kind of stuff. Richard Pryor is the reason I felt comfortable talking about comedy because, you know, most people, oh, I grew up in a house and there were five of us. And, you know, it was really crazy when the milkman would show her, you know, like something you're not stupid, but just, you know, like my childhood was good. So when you Richard Pryor talk about, well, I grew up in a brothel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, but all those cats, The Rock, Drake. Richard Pryor, Kanye, they got to a point where they realized this is not what I want to be known for. Let me go pursue my real dream. And I understand what that's like, because you got to kill a dream to go pursue a new one. I don't know if people really get that, but like, you know, my that's a bar with leaving the NFL. Like I also had to leave my dreams of making a pro bowl. I had to leave my dreams of going to the hall of fame. I had to, I had a death in my life in 2014. His name was Charleston Fives. He was like, you know, everything. Dad, he was like your dad, right? Yeah. And he died. 
And it hit me as I was at his funeral and I couldn't stop crying. I was like, this man will never see me walk across the stage and get my golden jacket. He'll never meet my kids. You know, those kind of things. Right. But yeah, I had to bury a lot of dreams in order to pursue these dreams. You know, I like because like I said, I'm not playing. I, I have no chance at going. I was watching the Super Bowl this past Super Bowl. And I just remember watching it like this is it was almost like, you know, those this, this is your life episodes of shows. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like I was watching like these a morgue, like these are your dead dreams. You know, can you identify this body? Oh, yeah, that's the Hall of Fame dream that I thought that I was going to, you know, they showed the Hall of Fame member, the new inductees. And, you know, you see people winning games. I don't I don't even remember what that's like because I was not on winning team. <laughs> But there was just this voice in my head the entire time, like, these are all the things that you gave up to fail at music and comedy. In the industry, growing up in the industry, especially struggling with bipolar type one, do you think that it's helped you as like an artist? Where do you think it helps you? Where do you think it's actually made you uh, better? in a sense. And what are some of the things that like you're trying to work on the older you get with it? Well, I don't know if it made me better because I don't know any different, you know, like I don't know what it would be like if I didn't have it or if I wasn't medicated or if I was medicated at a time. So I'm not sure that's an answer. I wouldn't know because it's just what if coulda, woulda, shoulda circumstances, you know, but there are definitely things that I want to improve on. You know, I'm a firm believer in, you know, therapy and working on yourself and not just traditional therapy, but whatever that therapy means to you. If that means meditation, if that means going and taking a dance class, if that means going outside and just running around the block, I don't know, like writing, you know, whatever it is for you. I think that there's, listening to your mind and and taking a moment to just pause is is really important and it's necessary and you'll never be done not doing that thanks for joining me on another episode of off the cuff presented to you by 101 life if you liked what you heard please subscribe and send us some love with a review and don't forget we're all in this together and you're never alone peace 